0: Let us pray. Almighty God and loving Father, we ask now that through this word to us, you speak to us. You speak clearly to each one of us, and you bring us comfort and encouragement, and you bring us joy and peace in believing. Grant us your spirit that as we look to this psalm, we may know what you want us to hear, And go from this place to live and respond as you want us to live and respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a story. It's actually a true story. Some years ago, there was a correspondence in one of our national newspapers. And it began with a letter that went something like this. Dear Sir. I've been going to church for 30 years, and in all that time I have heard thousands of sermons, and I cannot remember a single one of them. So I've concluded that it's pointless, and I've stopped going to church. As you may imagine, there was a quite lively exchange of letters following that, and it was brought to an end with this letter. Dear Sir. I have been married to my wife for 30 years, and in all that time she has cooked me thousands of meals, and I cannot remember a single one of them. But I know that without that food and the love that that food reflected, I would quite simply be dead. I wonder what you're going to remember from this sermon this morning, if anything, It's quite a good issue, actually, and it does matter. I think it is important that we remember sermons, although as I was preparing this sermon, I had to admit that I can remember very few of the many sermons I've preached over the years. But perhaps more important is to listen prayerfully and carefully and attentively and openly and to believe that we are hearing the Word of God. And if it's like food, then it will nourish us and strengthen us and comfort us. Before we look at the psalm, can I just say one or two general things about the psalms? The psalms are songs. They're hymns. Really? They're poems. They're prayers. I came across one commentator who suggested that you can dance to the psalms, and they did. Many of them, perhaps most of them, are associated with David, great King David. And they were the psalms, they were the songs, the hymn book, if you like, of the ancient temple in Jerusalem. We're going back therefore, nearly 3,000 years. And yet the psalms have an astonishing ability to resonate with us today. They are extraordinarily contemporary and relevant. The subject of this or the title of this uh, series of psalms through the summer weeks is highs and lows for those living in the now. And the psalms do indeed embrace all the highs and all the lows that we can experience. Joy, sorrow, doubt, faith, hope, despair, helplessness, confidence. I'm going to suggest there's not a single person in this room this morning who couldn't read the psalms and find a psalm that reflects exactly what you're feeling this morning, the situation out of which you have come, the circumstances in which you feel yourself. And as Dan and Charlie have already pointed out to us, the psalms operate strangely in a two-way way mechanism. It's God's word to us, of course. The Psalms bring us God's word, but they also reflect our human emotions, our human experiences, and the whole range of them. And therefore, God comes very close to us, really close to us, in the Psalms. You've heard it said, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Can I suggest you read a Psalm a day for the health of your soul? a recent book by Tom Wright, Bishop of Durham, now professor up at St. Andrew's University in Scotland, his book on the Psalms says this, and I can't put it better. The Psalms are among the oldest poems in the world, and they still rank with any poetry in any culture, ancient or modern, from anywhere in the world. They are full of power and passion, horrendous misery and unrestrained jubilation, tender sensitivity and powerful hope. Anyone at all whose heart is open to new dimensions of human experience, anyone who loves good writing, anyone who wants a window into the bright lights and dark corners of the human soul, anyone open to the beautiful expression of a larger vision of reality should react to these poems like someone who hasn't had a good meal for a week or two. It's all here. Well, let's look at this psalm, Psalm 103. It's a psalm of praise. There are different kinds of psalms. Some psalms are psalms of thanksgiving. Some psalms, like 51 that Charlie brought to us last week, a psalm of confession. Some of the psalms are psalms of petition, asking God for things. This is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of worship. David is worshipping, he is adoring God and praising God. The great early church father, St. Augustine, said famously, My heart is restless until it rests in thee. My heart is restless until it rests in thee. And I think again that speaks to us. It speaks to all of us. Surely none of us here this morning who don't in some sense have a restlessness for God and a longing to worship him, and to be in communion with him, and to praise him. So let's look at the psalm. One of the finest blossoms on the tree of biblical faith, as one commentator has put it. And it is a psalm of praise. It begins with praise. It ends with praise. Verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul and 20, 21, and 22, four times praise the Lord. It's a psalm of praise. And I'm sure you know that in Hebrew, the phrase praise the Lord is Alleluia. Alleluia. It's a psalm of praise. And to help us get our minds around it, can I suggest we look at three questions. And the first question is, why is David praising God as he is. Secondly, who is this God whom David is praising? What is he like? And then thirdly, how are you to react? How are you to respond? What kind of life do you go out to lead once you have praised God? So let's look at those three questions. The first is why Is David praising the Lord and calling on us to praise the Lord? And it's a passionate call, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Someone has suggested that maybe David was a bit despondent when he came to write this psalm. He was a bit depressed, somewhat cast down, perhaps, and he rouses himself with this psalm. He calls on himself to praise the Lord. And that's maybe a tip for us. Whatever we feel, and in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, whatever our emotions, we praise the Lord. And as we call on ourselves to praise the Lord... We enjoy his confidence and his comfort and his blessing. And the word to focus on here, I think, is benefits. Forget not all his benefits. What are these benefits? Well, David sets them out in verses 3 to 5. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfy your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. These are the benefits, the blessings, the mercies of God. He forgives, he heals, he crowns with love and compassion, and he satisfies our desires. Note that they're verbs. It's quite a good tip in looking at a Bible passage to look closely at the verbs, which are words of action, words of doing. And these five verbs tell us what God is doing. David worships the Lord. He calls on us to praise the Lord. Why? Because of God's blessings and benefits for us. And the heart of the passage is forgiveness, forgiveness, who forgives all your sins. The words that David uses here are very similar to the words that you'll find early on in the Old Testament following the incident of the golden calf. Now, that's a very important story in the Old Testament Just very briefly Moses has gone up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments carved on two tablets of stone and he's left uh, the Israelites, the people of God, down below the mountain. They're still in the 40 years of wilderness wanderings and when Moses comes down he finds that the people have turned away from the Lord and they have made a golden calf. They've got everyone's gold jewelry and other gold items, and they've melted them down and made an idol, a golden calf. And of course, God is angry. Whatever else, that is a very big sin. God is angry. And Moses intercedes for the people. And then we read this, and I'm sure that David had this in mind in his psalm. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. At the heart of this is a loving and a compassionate and a forgiving God great sin great forgiveness and as Richard helpfully pointed out to us your little sins are equally hurtful and offensive and provocative to a holy God There's one other thing I just want briefly to point out before we move on to the second question. If you look at verse 4, we may have here a clue to the resurrection. Now, there are not many passages in the Old Testament that deal with the resurrection, but perhaps this is one of them. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. There are some commentators who see here a very clear reference to God redeeming us from death, from the pit, and giving us the inheritance of eternal life, crowning us with love and with compassion, may be a pointer to the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this first question, why is David praising God, praising the Lord? Why should you, why should I praise God the Lord? Because of his benefits. Because of his benefits, he forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, and satisfies us. The goodness of God. Let's move on to question two Who is this God that David is worshipping, and who is this God, the Lord, whom he is praising? And I suspect that's one of the greatest questions that any of us can ever ask ourselves. What is God like? Again, I'm sure all of us here this morning have some sense, some kind of sense of God. Therefore, what is he like? There could be no more important question. An interesting item on the news uh, this morning on the radio about the forthcoming Star Wars films. It's a big uh, thing in my family when our two boys were small, Star Wars. And I dare say there are some fans in this room. And David Wilkinson, who is uh, principal at St. John's Durham, was on the radio this morning saying one of the extraordinary things about Star Wars is its ability to raise important questions, whether there is a, a God, a force, an influence, some kind of power or being, and what the purpose of life is and what the meaning of life is. And that's why these films have a compelling attraction to so many people. Well, maybe that's so. But it is a great question, what is God like? Who is he, this God, whom we are called on to praise? And we have the answer in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Can I be a little bit personal for a moment? Like all my parish minister colleagues in Scotland and indeed parish ministers in England, a big part of my ministry was funerals. I conducted literally hundreds and hundreds of funerals over 30 years. And I took each one of them extremely seriously. I worked very hard to do my best for the family who were suffering a bereavement. I found them very draining, very emotionally burdensome and tiring, but they were extremely important. Because it was clear to me, and I'm sure you'll see the point that at a funeral service you very often get the majority of the congregation who have no contact with the church whatsoever. They never go to church, they don't know anything about the gospel, they don't know very little about Jesus Christ. And yet there they are, they are part of a, an act of Christian worship, remembering someone who has died they're emotional and they're vulnerable. And I always found it a wonderful opportunity to try and offer some degree of comfort. And I chose various readings, many different readings, but I suppose the reading that I chose most of all was was this reading here in Psalm 103. I wanted those at the services to hear these words and to know that God is like this. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Yes, God is a God of wrath and anger and judgment upon human sinfulness, and we have all fallen short, and none of us have done have done good. But he's also a God whose a God of love, and he will not be angry forever. And you know, it's almost as if David finds this truth so wonderful, so big, that he really hasn't the language, he hasn't the words to describe it. You feel him struggling here for words and for an imagination to grasp the the wonder of the glory of God. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Compassion. He knows. He knows how we are formed. He knows how you are formed. He knows all about you. He knows more about you. He knows more about me than you know of yourself or I know of myself. And he loves us. And whether we're at a high or at a low, whether we are burdened with our sins and our fears or whether we are rejoicing and glad, he remains the God who loves us, who forgives us, and who blesses us. I've always liked the story of the little girl who was drawing a picture. And her mother came to her and said, What are you drawing? And the little girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And her mother said, But nobody knows what God looks like. Ah, said the little girl, they will do when I've finished. But it is a big question. What is God like? He's like the Father who has compassion. On his children. Let me be quite bold and direct and say that for Christians, the simplest confession that we can make is that Jesus is God, or if you like, Jesus is Lord. We have to look to Jesus, and we see in Jesus, in his life and his teaching, in his suffering, in his cross. In his resurrection, we see the perfect revelation of this love and compassion and forgiveness of God. It's wonderfully put for us by St. Paul in the first letter to the Colossians. Don't bother to look it up, just listen to me as I read it. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The simplest Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. And for those of you here who are, as we sometimes say in Scotland, far ben in the faith, you who are very mature in, in the faith, who've been Christians for years, perhaps as long as you can remember, it may be that from time to time you ask yourself the question, what do I believe? What, what do I really believe? Can I put it in a very simple form? And I suggest to you, you can. Jesus is Lord. And for those of you who've come perhaps just beginning on that journey, uncertain, unsure, looking for answers, not quite sure what the Christian church proclaims, not quite sure what the gospel is, I say the same thing to you. Jesus is Lord. It's the simplest confession that we can make. We've been remembering this week the anniversary, centenary anniversary of the First World War. And none of us were alive during that war, and indeed, not many during the Second War. I was born at the end of the Second War. I don't remember the war, but I remember its aftermath very well. My father had served throughout the five years of the Second War. And there's a story about the Second War which I like, about a friend of mine in Edinburgh who was a chaplain with the British Army in France. And his unit came under fire. And one of his soldiers was mortally wounded, clearly dying but he was conscious and my friend went to him and put his arms around him and held him and the man looked up to him and said Padre is Jesus God and my friend who was a wonderfully fine and sincere and faithful Christian could say in all truth and sincerity yes he is and the man died in his arms. And my friend always hoped that as he died, when he died, he died with that truth in his mind and in his thoughts and in his heart. Jesus is Lord. It's always struck me as a very powerful proof, if you like, of the divinity of Jesus that the word Lord that's used so often in the Old Testament of God, indeed, as God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself as Lord. And it's that same word, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, that people use to address Jesus and describe Jesus and worship Jesus. The Lord of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. So why does David exhort us to praise the Lord? Because of his blessings, his benefits, his mercies. And this God whom we worship and praise, what is he like? Well, look to Jesus and you'll see what he's like. So then thirdly, how are we to respond? What are we to do about this if we believe any of it? seems to me that we are always facing a choice, a decision for Jesus Christ. We're always having to respond. We may do so memorably on one occasion that marks a real transformation in our lives and a real conversion, but it doesn't stop there. We go on choosing and deciding and committing ourselves for Jesus for as long as we live. We have to start sometime But we go on and on and on, living, trying to please him. And there's a clue in verses 17 and 18. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The fear of the Lord. Reverence for God. Openness to him, approaching him in awe and respect and wonder. And keeping his covenant and obeying his precepts, his teaching, his commands. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. We are called, you are called, I am called to respond by living in the kingdom of God. It is the dominant theme in the teaching of Jesus. Look at his miracles, his parables. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God is continually set before us and we are called to enter it and to work within it and to serve within it. That's what we're to do. That's how we're to live and respond by seeking God's righteousness in his kingdom where Jesus is enthroned as king. We enter it, we serve within it, we seek to spread it, we seek to call others into the kingdom. It's a kingdom of justice, and it's a kingdom of love, and it's a kingdom of peace, and it's a kingdom of righteousness. It's not a caliphate, but it's a kingdom. And as we were thinking of in our earlier intercessory prayers, this morning the kingdom of God in the northern part of Iraq when tens of thousands of Christians have fled. Many have already died. Or as I was hearing this week in the Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza run by the Diocese of Jerusalem, those Christian doctors and nurses totally and utterly overwhelmed with the casualties that have been brought to them. How can they serve effectively and minister healing and spread the kingdom of God? But that, of course, is what they're called to do. Or the kingdom of God here in East Oxford? Or in your life? Or in my life? How are we going to respond? And so I end with this. If we can respond, and I hope we can respond, that makes you and me different. It makes us distinct from others. I hope it makes us attractive. To others, Not in any proud way or conceited way or self-righteous way, God forbid, but in a humble and a gentle and a quiet and a patient and a persevering way, we can show the benefits that come to us, the blessings, the mercies of God, for which we turn to pray and praise him. And we join with his other servants in his kingdom to seek to do his will here on earth as it is in heaven. Praise the Lord.